This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, September 1st, 2021. I'm Caleb Brown. California has a housing problem, some of the highest housing prices in the country, some of the most substantial homelessness problems in American cities as well. Nolan Gray is a housing researcher at the University of California. He argues that decades of housing under production and the regulatory environment have contributed to the state's biggest problems. We spoke in July in Rapid City, South Dakota. California is a special state when it comes to housing. Housing. Uh, it has, it, it alarms people. It surprises people to learn that uh, California has the highest rate of homelessness in the United States. And you know, for such a big state and a state that has such wealth, it's uh, it doesn't necessarily make a lot of sense until you dig into the policies. What has, in your view, what has given California its state right now with regard to the expense of housing and the difficulty that people are having finding it? Yeah, well, you know, if you look at the data, California is in an incredibly unusual position here where, at, you know, at the, on the one end, they have some of the highest housing prices in the country, uh, second only to Hawaii, for obvious reasons. Uh, but they also have some of the highest homelessness rates in the country. Um, you see it when you go to a city like Los Angeles or San Francisco, uh, tent encampments. Um, less extreme and, and less visible are the people moving out of the state because they just can't afford an apartment or a young family can't afford a starter home. Or they're cashing out. Yeah, they're cashing out and uh, buying a ranch in Oregon, like my my aunt and uncle who I was just visiting. Um, so, you know, it works out for some people, but uh, for other people, it's been catastrophic. And it's the inevitable result of decades of housing underproduction, which really just comes down to California making it too hard to build. The regulations are too strict. Uh, the local zoning in particular uh, makes it very hard to build the types of housing that California needs. And statewide environmental regs, I assume, are also a, a challenge. Absolutely, yeah. So under California law, any development that involves any sort of discretionary approval uh, must complete uh, an environmental review. These can be very, very costly uh, in, in and of themselves, but then they also open the project up to litigation risk. So NIMBYs or people opposed to the projects can often sue and tie the projects up in court for months, if not years. So uh, what has California done recently to try to address the problem? Certainly, it's a problem that it's ever present in the in the larger metros in California. Everyone's aware of it. Massive companies that have a presence in California have had severe workforce problems associated with housing. So what are they what have they tried to do? What are they trying to do now? Yeah, well, that that's a great point that you've made when Toyota left metropolitan Los Angeles and moved to metropolitan Dallas. That was the number one thing they said is that the cost of living is too high. We can't recruit talent uh, or we can't pay them at rates that uh, make it worth them moving out here. So, you know, businesses are concerned, uh, housing activists are concerned. Uh, uh, there's a whole reasons why people are concerned about the housing affordability crisis. Over the last few years, uh, state legislators have tried to get a handle on it and to peel back some of the regulations. Um, baby steps, really, more than anything. The state has legalized what are called accessory dwelling units statewide, which means you can, you know, take an unused attic or an unused basement or an unused garage and turn it into an apartment. So we've seen a lot of those ADU conversions happening in Los Angeles, and that's been positive, but it's not going to be enough to create all the housing, especially the owner-occupied housing that the state needs. Well, uh, let's dig into that a little bit. What uh, what kind of discretion do localities have to say no or to slow <laughs> down the process of building accessory dwelling units? 
Well, this is a this is a decades long story. So the state of California originally tried to encourage local governments to adopt ADU ordinances. You know, in the eighties, I think was when they first started trying to do this. Um, basically, city governments kept finding ways to um, block these or delay these or have impact fees that made them uneconomical to actually build an ADU. So homeowners, of course, didn't do that. Um, over the last few years in particular, they've set statewide standards, which make it very hard for local governments to stop a homeowner from actually building an ADU on their lot. So very little discretion for localities. That's right. Yeah. And and frankly, that's what's necessary, because in many cases, local governments will do everything they can to stop these from being built. Uh, you know, even though you have an incredible demand for housing and homeowners who want to add additional units onto their property. As a legislative matter, what are they working on now? Yeah, so there's a few exciting bills. I think the, the big bill that some folks following this space might have heard of is SB9. Um, so a little bit of context here. A lot of California was was built out, you know, in the post-war period, a lot of ranch-style single-family homes on 5,000-square-foot lots. And to build the housing that the state needs, in many cases, you're going to need redevelopment of a lot of those lots, maybe to add two or three townhouses or a duplex or a fourplex on a lot of those lots. Because in many cases, those homes are situated near jobs and in some cases, transit. So you want to add additional housing, particularly in infill areas where you already have the infrastructure. So SB9 would say any residential lot in California, you can subdivide it into two lots, uh, and then you can have a you can have two units on each of those lots. So essentially, you can take every lot in the state of California, and if a property owner wants to do it, they can turn it into four new units. Um, and so that's positive. You know, duplexes or small fourplexes, and these can even be townhouses or anything like that. Those are the types of starter homes and affordable apartments that the state needs right now. And, and just as a general matter, uh, infill, you're talking about neighborhoods that exist and uh, neighborhoods where maybe the housing stock is not great. Uh, it's been run down in a sense. I'm thinking of certain neighborhoods near college campuses that might not be uh, super great based on uh, the young people who've been uh, living there for a while uh, and not maintaining the property. So uh, what is what's the upside of infill as a as a policy? Yeah, well, so historically, most housing has been built out on the periphery of town, right, in a new subdivision on what used to be a farm or a, a forest or something. In a state like California, a lot of that land has kind of been used up. A lot of the land, particularly within, you know, an hour's drive of job centers, it's been developed. So that kind of low-hanging fruit for new housing has been has been plucked, you know, decades ago. So adding housing in a developed state like California, maybe as opposed to a Sunbelt state like Texas or Georgia, where there's a lot of remaining greenfields to be developed, in a state like California, the housing is going to have to be on property that already has something. Um, and so you're right, you know, in many cases there are. Uh, neighborhoods where they're at the end of their life cycle. You know, the homes were built 50 years ago. Uh, we can continue to restore them and put in the marble countertops and stainless steel appliances and pretend like it's a nice new house. But in many cases, it might actually be positive if a property owner says, yeah, I want to take this and I want to build a duplex on it because I know I can rent out both the units because there's just demand. Or I want to take my property and I want to put three townhouses on it. Um, you know, these are the kinds of things that the state actually needs to happen, and uh, local regulation shouldn't be standing in the way. And there are a lot of NIMBYs, I believe is the term, uh, <laughs> who like their neighborhoods just fine, uh, and yet preside over, and I think you and I have discussed this before, sort of sit there happily having prevented the kinds of redevelopment that uh, you like, uh, that I would like, and are wondering why there aren't any children in their neighborhood. I think mm -hmm. that's something maybe uh, you had told me in the past. Uh, so to the extent that California is doing this, 
all of that sounds wonderful, but in terms of numbers for uh, like ADUs and redevelopment, what do we see? You know, ADUs, it's starting to pick up. Uh, so the, the real key ADU legislation mostly happened in 2017, uh, where the state kind of stepped in and set baseline rules. Uh, so it's coming. It's it's growing. You can drive around L.A. and you come up to a stop sign and you'll see a sign that says I buy houses. And then below it, you'll see a sign that says free quotes on ADU conversions. Right. Um, so not particularly pretty signs, but I take that as, you know, a sign that a market is forming. Right. Contractors are figuring out that they can build these things. It'll probably be the same issue with a bill like SB9, right? That it'll take contractors time to figure out that they can subdivide lots or they can make offers to homeowners that will encourage them to do that. But over time, the market will kind of learn that, hey, some of these rules that were standing in the way of housing production have changed and uh, we'll start to see new production. So if the state is setting baseline for this is how it's going to, this is how it's going to be, people, uh, to what extent have localities uh, what you know the politics of this is is critical, and everybody's worried about their the value of their home, and they're very they're very concerned about it. Um, what has been the local politics of that kind of move? Yeah, well, so of course the local regulators and local policymakers don't want any of their power taken away, even though they've been shown to have used that power irresponsibly over the last few decades. So you know, groups like uh, League of Cities organizations typically oppose this type of preemption legislation. And it's also weird from an ideological perspective, because it's essentially it's a state government saying to local governments, hey, you're over-regulating. We're going to come in and regulate you and make you stop over-regulating if you <laughs> are following the logic there. So, of course, the local governments, they want to have all the power. They insist that, oh, we'll do it right this time. You know, they make pleas like like uh, an alcoholic resisting an intervention, like, oh, we'll, we'll be better now. We'll allow the ADUs. Just let us make the rules. We'll allow duplexes. Just let us set the rules. Um, you know, and, and they've had that power for the last 50, 60 years. And the state government's com coming in and saying, all right, we're just going to set ba baseline standards for if a homeowner wants to do X, Y, Z, here are the rules, and you can't jerk them around. This is a case where, for a homeowner, their ability to make use of their property increases. That's right. And so uh, it's a net win for the property owner's liberty to use their property the way they want after many overweening local governments have said no. That's right. I mean, it, you know, there's enormous demand for housing, right? Uh, current property owners, current homeowners stand to actually benefit if they can take their property and subdivide it into two or three or four more homes, or if they can add an accessory dwelling unit to their property. You know, people make a lot of big claims about property values, but there's really no evidence that the government scaling back some of these regulations actually lowers property values. And there's pretty good evidence that it might actually increase them in contexts where you can now build a fourplex, where there's enormous demand for uh, apartments or townhouses. Yeah, in neighborhoods where infill would be great, you have the opportunity to completely revitalize uh, a neighborhood that otherwise would just continue to sort of sink into slack. Right. Yeah. I mean, you have you have you have two, maybe two different types of neighborhoods. You have neighborhoods where, you know, there's not been a lot of investment and the zoning is very restrictive and you can't really do anything that would be economically productive there. That's one context. Or they have a context where it's a very wealthy area. Uh, a small minority of people have pushed very hard for very restrictive regulations, making it uh, impossible to build any new housing in that area. So in that case, the, the property might be nice, but you could still subdivide them or create additional units. Um, and this is really like small scale infill that they're mostly talking about. We're talking about things like duplexes or fourplexes that aren't really going to change the character of neighborhoods or not really going to dramatically disrupt um, communities.
so for other states, obviously California is just a big sore thumb in terms of of this problem. But this problem is coming to other states as well, slowly, and and maybe uh, you know are are other states paying attention to what California is doing, or are they? thinking, oh, we've got plenty of space. We can just build forever. We've barely even tapped, you know, Joe's farm over here. Um, what are state lawmakers thinking elsewhere where things don't matter? I mean, you and I are both from Kentucky. So <laughs> I think about Kentucky where I live essentially on the divide between city and farms. And eventually that's not going to be the case. Right. Yeah. I mean, eventually you develop all of your farms that are within an hour's drive of downtown. Eventually you develop all of your natural areas. Um, and, you know, I think it's it's perfectly fine to let that development happen, uh, you know, as, especially if it's if it's paying its own way and it's not imposing a burden on other taxpayers. Um, but I think you're exactly right that what we're seeing right now is California is essentially exporting its housing crisis to other states by not having acted until very recently. So for the first time, you're seeing affordable housing issues in a place like Boise, Idaho. <laughs> this is not exactly, you know, ground zero for the housing affordability crisis historically, but places like Boise or places like Salt Lake City, um, places throughout the Mountain West are dealing with issues of, you know, surging demand. And then in many cases, they have regulations that are nearly as restrictive as California, but because they had all that undeveloped land, they never really were bumping up against the limits. And for the first time, they're starting to. And the housing prices are just going to keep going up and production is just going to keep lagging unless these states deal uh, with these regulations now. Is there a, a partisan divide on this? Because, uh, you know, if you look back 100 years ago, a lot of the uh, more unfortunate housing policies adopted by cities were defended openly by progressives. Uh, and now it's, uh, you know, as, as you and I spoke last year or earlier this year, you know, Donald Trump is, is, was yelling about Joe Biden wanting to destroy the suburbs. So is, is there a partisan divide? Yeah, I think it really scrambles partisan lines. It's kind of a weird issue, right? Because if, if you're pushing for reform, there are a lot of reasons why you might do that. You know, from a conservative perspective, you might say, Local zoning regulations restrict what people can do with their property. It's impeding the natural working of a housing market where high demand should stimulate new supply. And we're going to get rid of a lot of these regulations. That's a that's a market-friendly, maybe conservative or libertarian amenable argument, right? Is to clear out some of these excess regulations. And, you know, I think progressives are also now newly very concerned about this issue because they sort of see the way that restrictions on infill are maybe forcing uh, excess development on the periphery you know, driving more people to live further and further out and driving their cars and causing all sorts of environmental issues. Or they see how zoning is used to perpetuate segregation. You know, that was essentially the original purpose of zoning. Um, so I think you have a really kind of interesting coalition here. You know, Donald Trump, you mentioned Trump, he did make a, a 180 pivot on this issue kind of late uh, in his can in his uh, presidency when he was on the campaign trail. And I think he saw that he was losing the suburbs and he needed some sort of talking point uh, to deal with that group. Uh, but early in his administration, you know, you have Ben Carson coming out and saying like, yep, we're going to take on these local regulations. Um, you know, in the U.S. Senate, you have bipartisan groups of senators who are sort of sounding the alarm bells on this. Um, you know, you have people like uh, Joe Biden uh, have now take up, taken up the issue. Um, and at the state level, too, I think you have you see a lot of diversity, you know, so in some in certain states like uh, Texas or Arkansas or Oklahoma, They've done a different variety of state preemption where they say, hey, you can't set 
really, really expensive building material regulations above and beyond what's necessary for health and safety. Or you can't say, oh, no homes unless they're 4,000 square feet. So, you know, the, vari- the, the variety of the preemption uh, or the, the form of the preemption varies, I think, by states. But I think a lot of states are dealing with this issue in their own way. And I don't think it's necessarily a partisan issue, which makes me optimistic. Nolan Gray is a housing researcher at the University of California. We spoke in July in Rapid City, South Dakota. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast pretty much anywhere and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.